Welcome, ankle biters. You've stumbled on the far, far's far-fetched fables, the home of tall tales, old chestnuts, fish stories, and other unassorted yarns. We mostly cater to the young'uns here, but you grown-ups can have a listen too. If you have a mind to, tap on the follow button on your podcast app or find us on the Facebook. In the meantime, turn off the TV, put down the cell phone, get yourself a glass of warm milk, and settle in for some old-time storytelling. Tonight's episode... Chapter 7, Paul's Great Flapjack Griddle When Paul Bunyan arrived in the Dakotas, he was very much pleased over the prospects there of being able to set up a new logging record. The timberlands of those states were ideal for his work, the easy conditions being quite different from the harsh ones he had known in Maine and the other eastern states. In the first place, most of the land was so level that it was very easy to get the logs to the streams, and the trails were already so straight that there was but little work for Babe to do in straightening them. In fact, this new location was just about all that could be desired for logging on a tremendous scale, and Paul set to work with great enthusiasm. Paul had been accompanied westward by most of the men who had been with him in Maine. There were the seven axemen, the little chore boy, and faithful Ole, of course. Then, in addition, there were such famous loggers as Chris Crosshall, Hardjaw Murphy, Windy Knight, Red-Nosed Jack and Blue-Nosed Mac, Shot Gunderson, Handy Hank, Brimstone Bill, and a whole host of others. Mighty workers, every one of them, and all as proud as powder pigeons to be working for such a boss as Paul Bunyan. Both Babe and Willie, the big and little blue oxen, came along too, following close on their master's heels all the way and carrying on their backs all the tools, supplies, and other property that was to be used in the new camp. Some historians think that Paul also moved all of his camp buildings to the Dakotas, but that was probably done on one of his later moves, as the biggest building from his main camp would hardly have been big enough even for a tool house in his Red River camp after it got going full blast. Paul left his old camp in Maine very early in the morning, and so anxious was he to get located in his new camp that he hurried along at quite a fast pace, so that he arrived on the banks of what was afterwards called the Red River along about sunset of that afternoon. Most of his men kept up with him pretty well, but some of the stragglers didn't arrive along until sometime the next morning. Paul saw at once that he would be able to work very fast in clearing off this level land. These pines must be a new variety, he said to the big Swede. I have never seen any quite like them before. Did you notice how none of them stand up straight but all lean the same way? I think I'll give them the name Leaning Pines, 
and notify the tree experts back east so they can write about them in books. Indeed, there was something very peculiar about the big trees that covered the land so thickly, for they all leaned at just exactly the same angle toward the south. Ole, however, shook his head over what Paul had said. I think they be an ordinary white pines, he disagreed. I think hoogags make them lean that way. It so happened that at this time Ole was more right than Paul. For the leaning pines were not a new species at all. Their strange peculiarity had been caused, as the big Swedes suspected, by the hoogag, a frightful-looking but entirely harmless animal which was then to be found in great numbers in the Dakota woods. The hoogag was quite large, with a body like a buffalo, and often weighed as much as two tons. Its head and neck were absolutely hairless, its wrinkled ears flopped downward, its bushy tail wagged constantly, and it had long, muscular lips, which prevented it from feeding on grass or other low-growing herbage, but which were of the greatest use, like the trunk of an elephant, in stripping from trees the bark and twigs which were its usual food. Its greatest oddity, though, was its legs. They were long and stiff and perfectly straight, being entirely without joints in them, and since they therefore could not be bent, the hoogag could never lie down as other animals do. It lived its whole life, waking and sleeping, upon its feet. Occasionally, one would by some chance fall or be thrown to the ground, and as it could not bend its legs to get to its feet again, it was then perfectly helpless and soon died of fright or starvation. Its strange manner of sleeping was the cause of the leaning pines. When it wanted to take a nap, it would face the west and lean its left side against the trunk of a pine tree, brace its hind legs firmly but never ceasing to mark time with its splay-footed front ones, hang down its head and close its eyes, and in this manner it would rest comfortably. Countless hoogags had followed these exact habits through many centuries, and the pressure of their weight against the trees of the Dakota woods had after many years caused all the pines to lead toward the south in the manner which had at first deceived Paul. The uniform slant of the trees was a great aid in cutting them, for they all fell in exactly the same direction without any guidance on the part of the cutters. Paul was therefore able to use his great three-mile saw to the best advantage. When its blade passed through the forest, it ate its way through the thousands of trunks in its path like a mowing machine in a hayfield, and left the trees lying evenly side by side in windrows on the ground, ready to be cut into logs and snaked away. Paul was so strong that he did not have to have much help with the big saw, and he usually put the little chore boy on the other end to balance it down. He didn't care whether the little chore boy did much saw work with the other end or not, and he never said anything when the youngster would hang on to the saw handle and ride back and forth as the blade cut through the trees. But he did occasionally get a little angry when the lad thoughtlessly allowed his feet to drag on the ground. After the full crew got to working in the Dakota woods, the trees were cut down so fast 
that it was not very long before the poor Hugags could no longer find places to lean, and as a result, they soon began perishing for lack of sleep. Nearly all of them died during the winter that Paul had his big camp on the Red River, and it is only very rarely that a stray one has been seen since that time. It was on the banks of the Red River of the north that Paul set up his camp, and there he assembled one of the greatest logging crews that has ever existed. So many men did he have in camp that one of his bunkhouses had a 137 tiers of bunks, and the men used to go to bed with balloons and come down in the morning with parachutes. It was a pretty sight to see them early in the morning pouring out of their bunks and floating down in great clouds just about the time that the cooks were getting breakfast well underway. No alarm clocks were needed in Paul's camp. He knew lumberjacks pretty well, Paul did, and so he just had a big pipe stretched from the cook shanty to the bunkhouses and a blower fixed in it. In the morning, when the cooks had their fires going, the vittles beginning to cook and the coffee simmering, the blower fan was turned on and the smell of breakfast blown right into the bunkhouses. Then, if a jack didn't grab his parachute and jump out of his bunk right away, the camp doctor was sent to look for him over for everyone knew that he must be sick. Be the problem, Sonny. Paul found that feeding his many men was a good deal of a job, and especially did he find it hard to give them all the flapjacks they wanted, for they all seemed to have developed an extraordinary craving for this favorite delicacy. Since all of his men were so fond of flapjacks, he had to figure out some way to give them all they wanted, for he liked to keep his helpers satisfied. The special flapjack stove which he had brought with him from Maine had disappeared in a very strange manner shortly after his arrival in the Dakotas. The queer passion for hotcakes which constantly stirred Willie, the little blue ox, had grown rather than abated, and one morning he had stuck his head into the kitchen and eaten the day's supplies at one gulp. He topped off this tidbit by swallowing the red-hot flapjack stove as dessert, and as a result... He developed a very painful case of stomach ache, from which he soon died. Just what Paul did with his body is not certain, though the story goes that he sold the carcass that year. It was about 1857 when Willie died, it is said, to various packing companies in Chicago. These meat packers made a very good thing out of the remains of poor Willie, working him up and selling him for high prices. Not all of their stock has been disposed of yet. So much of him was there, and thousands of people in this day and age are familiar with the canned willy. More spam, anyone? It is rumored that most of him that was still on hand when the Great War broke out was sold to the government to feed the soldiers and sailors, and someday there may be an investigation to find out if this is true or not. Paul Bunyan puzzled over the problem of getting enough flatjacks for his men, and finally he ordered Big Ole to make him a huge griddle. So big was this griddle that the cookies greased it with telephone poles on the ends of which were tied great bunches of gunny sacks for swabs. As Paul kept hiring more men all the time, however, it was not very long before it became far too small 
and he had his problem to settle all over again. Someone at last told him where he could get a much bigger griddle to take the place of the one that was now outgrown. But it was so large that he couldn't at first figure out how to get it to the camp. Luckily, it was perfectly round in shape, and though it was so thick that when it stood on edge that it made a track as wide as a wagon road and was terribly hard to lift, Paul soon thought out a way to get it to the place where he wanted it. Being so hard-pressed by the need of more flapjacks in camp, he had started working on the inventive side of his brain again, and it was at this time that he invented the electromagnet. He and Ole made two enormous big ones, so strong that when they were tested out for the first time, they pulled all the axes and saws and other tools out of the hands of the men in the woods within five miles of the camp. Seeing the trouble they had caused, Paul shut off the magnets at once. But it was worse than a jigsaw puzzle sorting out all the things that had been pulled into camp. He was quite pleased, however, with such a demonstration by the magnets, for he knew that they were just the things to help him get the big griddle to where he wanted it. Shortly before this, he had bought a team of mules, Jerry and Ginny, intending to use them occasionally while he gave Babe a rest. This mule team could travel so fast after they had their regular feed of ten bushels of wheat apiece that no one else could hold them in, and so Paul always had to drive them himself. He used them hitched to a big flat-bottomed wagon without wheels. So now he harnessed up his mules, fixed his new magnets on the back of the wagon, and drove off to where the griddle was. He swung the magnets around until their strength drew the griddle right up on its edge. And then he drove off lippity-cut towards the camp. The pull of the magnets got the griddle going around so fast and following him at such a great rate of speed that he hardly knew how to stop it. For the faster the mules went, just that much faster did the griddle roll along behind trying to catch up. It was clearly impossible for him to run away from it. When he at last passed over the spot where he wanted it, he just dropped the magnets out of the wagon and pulled up to one side to watch what would happen. It rolled around and around like a big pie pan circling about on the floor until as it loses speed after someone spins it, getting nearer and nearer to where the magnets lay. It kept rolling weaker and weaker until finally it twisted around a couple of times more just at the place where he wanted it and gouged out a big hole in the ground as it turned. Then it settled down, as nice as you please, right flat over the hole it had dug, and there it was at last, all ready for use and with a place for the fire underneath. Paul then built a high fence around the griddle, and right beside it he put a couple of big buildings to hold his pancake flour. So perfectly did he have these buildings arranged that others just like them are used today as elevators for storing grain. He also invented a machine for mixing up the hot cake batter and had Ole make eight or ten of them, which were placed in position by the griddle. These machines of Paul's are also copied today, and anyone may see many small models of them being used by paving contractors for mixing concrete. There now! said Paul to Sourdough Sam, the head baker of the camp, 
who also had charge of all the flapjack making. There is a griddle to be proud of. A griddle which it should be a pleasure to work with. Everything is nice and handy. There's plenty of room to ensure all the best results. And from now on, you should find the subject of flapjacks as interesting as that of your sourdough bread. Sam was doubtful at first, for he had several disastrous experiments with flapjacks in the past. Once having his mixing vat burst and flood the landscape for miles around with thin and sticky flapjack batter, and he was not at all optimistic about making hotcakes on the tremendous scale which Paul had just made provision for. However, after he began to get used to the new arrangements, he began also to get interested in the intricacies of flapjack making. It was not long, therefore, until he was turning out his giant hotcakes with all the artistry which he had hitherto reserved exclusively for his first love, sourdough bread. From that time on, his flapjacks were so wonderful that men still talk about them, and no other griddle expert has ever been able to equal him in the preparation of this supreme delicacy. Everything was worked out on a very definite schedule, and it was truly a wonderful sight to see the big griddle being put to its daily use. Along in the afternoon, every day a gang of 300 flapjack cooks would start getting down the flour and fixins from the elevators, start the mixtures going, and stir the batter under the careful supervision of the boss baker. Meanwhile, as the batter was being mixed, the cook boys would have to grease the griddle. They did this by strapping whole hams or sides of bacon on their feet and skating around over the hot surface. Paul had to hire native Arizonans for this task as northerners could not stand the heat. When the batter was all ready and the greasing done, someone on the edge would blow a whistle, and so big was the griddle that it took four minutes for the sound to get across. At this signal, all the Arizonan cookboys would skate to the edge and climb on a high fence that had been fixed for that purpose. A cook would then trip the chute from the mixers and out would roll a wave of flapjack batter 10 feet high. Any poor cook boy who hadn't climbed out of the way and was overtaking by the spreading batter was in the worst kind of luck, for he would be found later in the flapjack, just like a raisin in a cake. Paul had a hard time at first figuring out how to flip the flapjack over onto its other side so that both sides of it would be cooked the same. Everyone has, of course, seen flapjacks flipped in the air out of a skillet so that when they come down again, they have turned over completely and the undone side has a chance to get browned in its turn. Of course, the big griddle and the flapjack on it were far too heavy for any wrist to flip in the ordinary manner. And so for a while, everybody had to eat flapjack that was done only on one side. Paul tried rigging a block and tackle arrangement for the turning of the big hotcake over. But that did not work very well, and the plan was abandoned. At last, he hit on the scheme of flipping it over with dynamite, which plan worked out so well that it was used from that time on. Whenever one side of the flapjack became done, he would explode a ton or so of dynamite under it. And away up in the air, the big cake would sail until it was almost out of sight. 
by putting a few more sticks of dynamite under one side than on the other, he made sure that it would turn over while in the air, and so nicely did he calculate the exact amount of explosive to use each time that when the flapjack came down again, it landed exactly on the griddle with the brown side uppermost. After this, Paul's men never had any cause for kicking about the flapjacks in the Red River camp, except occasionally when a cook boy was caught by the batter and served up in the hot cake, which usually didn't happen more than two or three times a month. Mmm, something to commiserate on for sure. I don't know about you, but all that talk about flapjacks is getting me powerful hungry. Speaking of that, if you're hungry for more of this here story, come on back and listen to Farfar's Farfetch Fables on Podbean, Apple Podcast. Tune in, and as soon as they get their act together, Google Play. Now go finish your homework, you cute little rugrats. Far, far.